and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Let's see your Bibles if you have them. Nothing like bringing your copy of the Word of God into the house of the Lord and studying it together. You'll want to turn to 1 John chapter 3. We'll be there in a minute. I really like what Warren Wearsby said, when the child of God looks into the Word of God and sees the Son of God, they are transformed by the Spirit of God into the image of God for the glory of God. And so he takes his Word and he uses it to form his people. And he does that in our individual times with the Lord as we steadily dive on the scriptures and pray to him about what we're learning and uh, have that interactive time with him as individuals we grow. And then he also uses the corporate times we're taught here in the church services and in your Sunday school classes and other Bible studies. He takes the corporate experience we're having in the word to form that what he wants us to show and demonstrate in our lives as a church body and as Christians that interact with others in the world. And so I'm so thankful for the way he does that through the Word of God. Now football season's upon us, which is a great joy always this time of year to get out and see teams play at stadiums, high schools and colleges and pro teams and things like that. And those stadiums are going to fill up before too long. At Garden Grove High School in Garden Grove, California, they're going to pour into a fairly new stadium. I believe it was built in 2019 for their local high school games. And it's called the Michael A. Mansour Memorial Stadium. On the 50-yard line, they're going to clearly see the golden trident of the Navy SEALs. So if you've seen the golden trident of the Navy SEALs on the 50-yard line, it's huge at Michael Mansour Stadium. Well, you might have guessed it. Michael Mansour served our country with the Navy SEALs, and you might have also guessed it, he died as a hero as he did so. Back in 2006, Petty Officer Mansour was stationed in Ramadi, Iraq. He saw a teammate wounded and pinned down under withering enemy fire. And this was said of him, with complete disregard for his own safety, he ran straight into the gunfire, bullets ricocheting off the ground at his feet in order to save his teammate. While suppressing the enemy with uh, his machine gun in one arm, he used the other arm to drag his injured teammate back to an evacuation vehicle. For that act of bravery, he won the Silver Star. A few months later, on September 29, 2006, Mansour and his team were under attack again. This time it was from AK-47 fire and a rocket-propelled grenade, but they were not sure where the enemy was, and that's terribly disorienting when you don't know where your enemy is and they're shooting at you with uh, live ammunition or uh, shooting grenades at you too. He was on the roof of a building with two other Navy SEALs, and insurgents on the ground had blocked off the streets, and over the mosque's loudspeakers, someone was yelling, kill the Americans, coming from the mosque, kill the Americans, kill the Americans, kill the Americans. He took a position in front of the doorway to the roof and between his two SEAL teammates, so he's between them and the door. 
and uh, they were in the prone position, desperately looking around, trying to spot their enemy. Suddenly, from somewhere unseen, an insurgent on the ground threw a grenade that hit Mansoor in the chest and fell to his feet. And he knew he did not have time to throw it back. He had to make a split-second decision. If he leapt behind the doorway, he could have saved himself, but no doubt his two teammates would surely die. If he left, leapt on the grenade, he would probably die. What would you do? Isn't it terrible that people have to make those split-second decisions there? Save yourself or save those that you're with? Well, you already know what Michael Mansoor did. He yelled, grenade! Then instead of jumping backward to save himself, he jumped forward chest first onto the grenade. It detonated into his chest, his body muffling the blast. His teammates survived, but he did not. At his funeral, one of his teammates said, Mikey looked death in the face that day and said, you will not take my friends. I will go in their stead. I hope that... Uh, that story gets told every time they have a home football game at Michael Monsoor Stadium. Or now there's a USS Destroyer that bears his name as well. And I hope all those uh, Navy guys that serve on it will hear that story. It reminds us so much of what Jesus said in John 15, 13. He said, greater love has no one than this that someone would lay down his life for his friends. And of course, Jesus modeled that kind of love when he died on the cross for the sins of the world. He, of course, had modeled that love by leaving heaven with all of its comforts to come to earth. And that would be like us going to the slums of Rio de Janeiro. It would be even more than that, like us going to the slums of Rio de Janeiro and living in those slums among those people. Uh, he came to earth and made uh, all his years worth of life worth of sacrifices in comparison to where he'd been from. And each day... Uh, showed unselfishness, laying down his life so that others could learn what they needed to learn. And of course, in the ultimate act of heroism, died on the cross in our place of judgment. You know, the blood of Christ, because of what Jesus did, the blood of Christ is it's sufficient enough to save everyone who's ever lived. But the Bible makes very clear that it's efficient to save only those who repent and turn to him in faith and receive his salvation. You know, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but they'll have eternal life. But did you know there's another John 3.16 in the Bible? John 3.16 talks about God's love for us and sending his Son to die for us, and if we receive him, we get eternal life. But there's also another John 3.16, 1 John 3.16. And so today, that's the other John 3.16 we're going to see that shows that the best response to those who have truly believed, in fact, if you have really believed in him, you will respond by not only loving him back, but also loving others in his name. And the word belief and the word love, no matter what else characterizes a Christian, belief and love are the two hallmark principles of a believer's life. 1 John chapter 3, we're going to read verse 11 down to verse 23. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain. Remember the first boys were Ad, uh, uh, Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's sons. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 
We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Well, I told you the other John 3.16, so let me read that again. I hope everybody in here, before the week is out, will have not only memorized John 3.16, but also have memorized 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Hey, do you ever struggle to feel the love of God in your heart? Do you ever struggle to feel saved in the day to day? Do you feel something other than that? Aren't you glad that God is greater than your heart? That what he says about you is more important than what you feel about you. God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. The loving disciple, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for 1 John 3. Thank you so much that we have a message that we heard from the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, and that is that we should love one another. Thank you that that love was perfectly modeled by you yourself, Jesus. We thank you that you lived a life of suffering and sacrifice so that we could be the beneficiaries of that. We thank you for the multiple ways you laid down your time before you laid down your life and you did it all. Thank you for that night in the upper room when you washed your disciples' feet. It was the need of the moment that had not been met and you stooped and met that need to show that the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And then you said, if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, I've given you an example that you should watch each other's feet, Lord God. Forgive us for being so selfish even as believers, for so many times wanting our will to be done rather than yours, for so many times claiming our rights rather than showing our security in you by reaching out and ministering to the least of these brothers and sisters in Christ, an entire world that needs you, God. Thank you that when belief is real, it's shown in love as you demonstrate to us in this passage. And we pray, Lord, I think about the great statement that we've already seen in this series where the fellow said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I pray that at the end of this message, we will all cry out to you, Lord, I do love people. Help me to excel at it all the more in your name. Help me to be a loving disciple. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, just a quick recap of where we've been the last couple months. We started by marveling at the broken disciple, Jesus' great uh, prophecy about him that was told that uh, a 
broken reed he will not break. In other words, if you're already bruised and broken, he won't finish you off. With him, the healing begins. And then we looked at the inviting disciple. And those first disciples were so intrigued by Jesus and so desirous of being his followers that they looked at their friends and they said, come and see. And there was such joy in their countenance and the changed life was a postcard, a poster going before them that others came and also saw and experienced how great Jesus is. Then we looked at the weak disciple. We looked at that fella that uh, had his doubts, but he said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And it's okay to have questions, but you need to act by faith on what you know. It's okay to have questions. It's not okay to reject the clear answers from God when he's already shown you who he is and you know that he's good. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And many times I'm there and you're there too, where we want our faith to be increased, but it's weak and it's incumbent on the church, as we saw last week, to help the weak, help them along and help them grow, even as we're getting more and more established in the faith. We looked at the hard-headed disciple. We looked at that time where Peter, as much of a leader as he already was among the 12, said to Jesus, I'm not gonna let you suffer and die. No, you're not going to go to no cross. You're not going to die. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, for you've got your mind on what man wants instead of what God wants. And there are times where we need to be rebuked like that. We want the easy road, and yet anything that gets accomplished for the faith or really anything big in life gets accomplished through sacrifice and suffering. As Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you've got to die, deny yourself. You've got to die to self, and you've got to take up your cross daily. Well, the cross was an instrument of death, and what he was teaching us is that we need to make sure that when we think about life and living, that we are putting ourselves on that cross and dying to the old way of thinking, thinking, the selfish way that always put ourselves first. It is good to have your own needs met and be a meter of the needs of others. What is not good is to act in selfishness and Jesus uh, turned Peter toward the kind of uh, sacrifices it would take to truly make a difference in this world. Jesus' suffering actualizes salvation for all who will believe. When we suffer, we suffer to give people access to that saving message, including those we send as missionaries to very hard places. Well, then we looked at the generous disciple. We looked at those ladies that were traveling with Jesus and the disciples and who were generously giving to make ministry happen. And we, all of us, men and women both, want to be like them and be generous as we know that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Last week, we looked at the idle disciple. Uh, not the ideal disciple, we looked at the idle disciple, the one who was unwilling to work. And we saw Paul's words that said, hey, if you're not willing to work, you shouldn't eat. And we said, this doesn't mean there are times where we don't need a hand up and help, we do. And so it's the church's privilege to join in in moments like that and individual Christians as well. But uh, even then, if we're retired or if we're disabled or something like that, there is a way that we can be workers for the Lord. I like how somebody said it, we're to be workers, not lurkers. <laughs> workers, not lurkers. And so there is some way that each and every one of us can add value. That was the phrase I used last week from the business world. I love that, where in every exchange you have every day, are you making uh, the world a better place by your actions there? As simple as picking up trash, to giving someone a ride that needs a ride, to uh, not thinking of yourself and doing something for another. Well, today we're going to look at what God is moving all true believers toward. 
being a loving disciple. And we're going to make three points from this passage that line up with the three paragraphs that are in this passage. The first one is true love is all about helping others experience abundant life. Abundant life. In verse 11 we read, this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And when we hear the beginning, we could trace it all the way back to God's plan for Adam and Eve to love him and love each other and spend time with him and each other in the garden. We could trace it back even further, though, to the love that has always existed within the Godhead. I love John chapter 17. It's when the Lord prays for his disciples and for his, uh, those that will become his disciples in the future. In verse 24 of John 17, Jesus said, Father, I desire that they also, these disciples whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Before anything was created, there was God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, our triune God, in perfect loving relationship with one another. Uh, beautifully modeling closeness, intimacy, communion, the kind of uh, what we're called to as we love him and love one another. So Jesus was confident in his loving relationship with the Heavenly Father, and he also taught us to love others as he has, had loved us. So the beginning, the message you heard from the beginning I think what John had in mind was beyond creation itself and before creation, the triune God. I think he was thinking about that time in the upper room when Jesus, and it says that Jesus was secure enough to serve. He knew who he was in relationship with his heavenly father. He knew his work on earth was coming to a close. And it said he stood up from the t uh, table they had there. He put an apron around himself like a servant and washed their feet. The host was supposed to do it and hadn't done it. And the disciples were probably complaining at the service at that establishment. You know, there might've might been a supply uh, shortage, a worker shortage or something like that. And they were complaining about the service around here. And Jesus heard them complaining. He himself got up and did what the servant should have done. Peter was outraged. He's like, listen, um, you know, uh, I should be doing that for you. So if the servants didn't do it that we were complaining about, you shouldn't do it, Lord. I should do it for you. And Jesus said, no, watch what happens. And he loved him and washed his feet. He met the need they had there. And he said, if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, I've given you an example that you should wash one another's feet. And then in that same passage, John 13, he says, a new command I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. The command to love has always been there, but for Jesus' disciples, every time we think about loving one another, we're to love others the way Jesus has loved us. John 13, let me read that passage. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, even as we sang in the song there, if you have love for one another. So if you ever wonder what loving others in the name of Jesus should look like, think about Jesus. Think about his interactions with the disciples. Now, don't think about it in a, in a way shaped by some of the uh, phony baloney ways of love that we hear about in our world where we say, I love a Sunday and I love my wife and I love the, uh, the, the Dallas Cowboys or whatever we would say and things like that. Think about the way Jesus loves, the way he made specific and tangible sacrifices to spend time with people in this world, the way he spoke it and acted in their best interest, even when he had to be a little tougher with them. 
the way he helped broken people experience healing everywhere he went, the way he encouraged the faint-hearted, the way he spoke words to the hard-headed that they needed to hear, and the way he sacrificed to meet needs. He modeled 1 Corinthians 13 type love. Every time I do counseling with a couple, I go back to 1 Corinthians 13, the great passage that says love is patient, love is kind, love does not keep a record of wrongs and those type things. And you could take every one of them and say, that's Jesus. Jesus is loving, Jesus is kind. Jesus is not boastful and all the different things that are in there. And we want to regularly turn that around and think about our relationship with, with that and ask questions of ourselves. Is Danny patient? Is Danny kind? Uh, et cetera, those things. So Jesus modeled all those things. Well, back in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, he told us what love is not to be like. Look at 1 John 3, 12. He said, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother Abel. Cain and Abel, the ancient story. And it says that uh, he was of the evil one and murdered his own brother. Well, why did he murder Abel? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So Cain epitomized hate toward a brother, not love toward a brother, selfishly acting toward a brother, not lovingly investing in him. His actions epitomized hate. He was furious when God approved of his brother's righteous actions. Instead of repenting and doing what God asked, Cain selfishly chose instead to kill his brother. The opposite of love, hate. It was the kind of evil action the evil one Satan just loves. And it reminds us of Jesus' words in John 10.10. It gives both Satan's job description and Jesus' job description. Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes to what? To kill, steal, and destroy, or opposite, steal, kill, and destroy. He said, I have come that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. So Satan wants to take, Jesus wants to give. Satan wants to act in your worst interest. Jesus wants to act in your best interest. Satan pictures hate of others. Jesus pictures love of others. Cain was upset because his brother's right choices showed how sinful his choices were. <laughs> and guess what? The same thing happens to us. When we serve God, when we walk by faith and we do what God would have us do according to the scriptures, there's going to be a lot of Cain's that don't like it, right? And that's why we see in verse 13, uh, John say, don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. The world will also be upset with believers when our right choices show how sinful choices theirs are, just as Cain was at Abel. So I love these words. You know, there's a lot of things that surprise us where you can find a scripture that says, don't be surprised, right? So Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So what do we do? We have trouble and we're surprised at it. He said, don't be surprised when you have trouble in this world. Uh, Paul told Timothy, everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will experience persecution. Now, persecution's a spectrum. We've got brothers and sisters around the world dying for the faith. But even in America, if you serve Christ at your workplace, at your school, in your family, in your home, there will be those that taunt you. There will be those that mock you. There will be those that criticize you. Uh, somebody might 
punch you or hurt you in some way all the way up to the most extreme where somebody kills you for the faith. There's a spectrum there. But if you're faithfully serving Jesus, somebody's not going to like it. If you're trying to be like righteous Abel, doing the right thing, doing justly, loving mercy, walking humbly with your God, there's going to be someone or multiple someones out there who criticize you for it. It may be somebody very close to you, a parent, a child, parents and children. It may be a friend. It may be somebody very close to you. You may be a spouse who has that happen in your home, and uh, it's the way of the world. But he says, do not be surprised by it. I fear that sometimes when things don't go our way and that kind of trouble comes to us, we say, this isn't fair, Lord. I thought if I served you, everything was to go my way, and it's hard serving you. We don't get those notions from the scriptures, right? We're saints. Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith encounter difficult things and overcame. But some got killed in this life and the overcoming trophy will be in the next life. And we have to keep that in mind. I always get amused. Some of you have heard me give this illustration before. But I think about all the young people and some older people too that like to play video games. And uh, I think about the classic one, Mario Brothers, right? So if you uh, succeed in level one, what's the reward for it? Going to level two. What happens on level two? Some of the same stuff, but faster and harder, right? Well, what happens if you succeed at level two? Well, you go to level three, and it comes faster, and it comes tougher, right? Well, what happens if you succeed at level three? Well, okay, there's eight levels, so you get the point. So the reward for doing well at one level is getting to go to a tougher level. Some of you have had tougher things come in your Christian life and you go, why doesn't God like me anymore? It was so much joy and fun when I first started out. Why is this tougher now? It's because you passed level one and you're on to level two. In the video game, you embrace that and say, this is great. I get to do tough things in life. You say, I don't want to do tough things for the Lord. I want it to be easy. So embrace the challenge, you guys. Embrace the challenge that God is rewarding you with more impact for him, when it gets tough, it means he's developing you for even more. And we have 10,000 years or more. I was just told this past week, you know, 50 years ago, uh, when we first were here and sang Amazing Grace together as a church, R.J. Barber Jr. said, you know, I don't like that 10,000 years thing because it's too short. So when we sing it, we're going to sing when we've been there forevermore. Some of you were able to fill that in when we've been there forevermore. And so, yes, we have the joy of the Lord even now as we face tough things. But, man, we're going to be forever with the Lord and celebrating all he did through us on those tougher levels. Embrace that challenge. So true love is about helping others experience abundant life. Verse 14 tells us to make sure we love the brothers. It's one thing for God-loving Abel to be hated by God hating Cain. But God-loving Abel should not have to deal with hate from another God-lover. And I want to hit something head-on here. The great divide in America's churches between the generations, where there's so much fun to be had in children's ministry and youth group and those different things. And sometimes those that are older uh, have their own fun, but there's this separation and, and, and sometimes we look sideways at each other. It's going to take death to self and self-denial to enjoy music together when some songs appeal more to the younger and some appeal more to the older. 
But that's part of the great challenge of the faith, to bring us all together in Christ, doing a little bit of each, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and the other ways that we embrace. But you know, there's just so many different ways even the generations wind up thinking about things. And, and I just want to say to a younger generation of believers, older Christians need your love. They need you now in the present to say thank you. Thank you for modeling the things of faith over the years. I know there's things you've gotten wrong, but the younger people get a lot wrong too. I'm just thankful that you persevered. You look at an 80 or 90 year old saint that it takes a whole lot just to get here on a Sunday morning. And you thank them for that persevering example. You thank them for them and their spouse who may already be in heaven giving and sacrificing over the years so there could be a tabernacle here that we enjoy these wonderful ministries in and we have a way to impact the world today as we did in years gone by. And the same thing's true in reverse. Old, younger people don't need older Christians looking sideways at them or making stupid and snide remarks about the, the follies of youth. Uh, deal head on with your own negativity. These are the best days of all time for those who are currently living and engaging in this ministry life for the Lord. Don't talk so much about yesterday and years gone by that you can't see that God's at work in an amazing way right now among our young people and in the churches of this city and in the churches of our land. Yes, we can all go through all the problems that there are. But you know, I remember one time I was a, a youth pastor a long time ago and I was in youth group talking about some of the problems that kids have in families from dysfunctional homes. I was from a dysfunctional home, etc. And I'll never forget it. This girl came up to me afterwards and she said, I just don't get you always talking about, you know, these things not working out. And she basically said, it's all I've ever known. This is what life is for me. So help me know how to live for Jesus now in the midst of this being my only reality. So we can talk forever and a day about how it was in the leave it to beaver era, you know, or whatever. But we want to give people the tools they need now to live in very difficult situations and to live for God's glory. As some of them do, they're going to experience Cain-like hate from those that they know best. What they need in the church is one able supporting another able, even if one's a younger able and another's an older able. Amen? Amen. True love is about helping others experience abundant life. But next we see true love must be tangibly expressed. Tangibly expressed. In verse 16, he has those two words, we know. John likes to use those words in his first John letter. By this we know love. Jesus laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, we're going to see in a moment from verse 23 that everything we're commanded by Jesus to be about as Christians is summarized by the words believe and love. In John 3.16, we're told if we believe, what do we have? Eternal life, everlasting life. In this other John 3.16, we're told what love looks like, laying down our lives for others like Jesus did. Do you see how he says it there? He laid down his life for us, what we ought to do. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He did it for us, we do it for others. Now again, his life laid down is the only way to be saved because of what he did for us on the cross, what we couldn't do for ourselves. But there are hundreds and thousands of ways that we can lay down our lives for others. 
Now, Michael Monsoor shown the ultimate way to literally die so somebody else could go on living physically. And for some, that has always been a reality for believers, 2,000 years of Christian history and around the world today. Those, that ultimate sacrifice, that martyrdom still happens. But it's also being willing to lay down our time to help others in tangible ways. Sometimes the way you lay down your life is by taking three hours and going and helping somebody who otherwise wouldn't have received that help. When you do that, you're practicing the lay down your life's lifestyle, right? Because you could have done something else with those three hours. Now you're investing it in another to help them. You're laying down your time. And of course, we can think about resources, other unselfish sacrifices throughout the day. Verse 17 gives us a penetrating question. Do you see it there? It says, but if anyone, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how in the world does God's love abide in him? Obviously, the answer is it doesn't. The answer is that God's love may not be in that person. Cain saw his brother. You know, he'd struck him. His brother's going to die, and he let him die. He saw his brother with eyes of hate and closed his heart to him. But loving disciples first open their hearts to brothers in need and then open their hands to help brothers in need. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited to be the pastor of the tabernacle. I have, since I've been here, you have impressed me so much as individuals and Sunday school classes and other areas of ministry. You give of your time and resources to provide for your own families. You give of your time and resources to help out your fellow Christians. So many examples of it, so many beautiful examples of it, even this past week. And you're, as you're able, you do for others. Uh, we hope will one day become Christians, but we give the help even if they don't. I like verse 18. Wonderful old John says, Hey kids, don't just say you love others. Show it through acts of love. Not just in words, but in deeds, right? Not just by talking, by showing. So true love is all about helping others experience that abundant life, but that love must be tangibly expressed. Now, at lunch today, as you're talking with others, talk about some ways that you've seen the love of Christ tangibly expressed in ministry to others. Well, finally, verses 19 to 23, we see that true love reassures our hearts as believers. This is just a wonderful few verses here. Look at verse 19. He says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. <laughs> this verse is so cool because we talk about, a lot about assurance of salvation and we should. We can know that our belief in Jesus has resulted in, in eternal life. So from chapter 3, turn over to chapter 5. It's one of the reasons why he actually wrote 1 John. 1 John 5.13, John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I know there's some Christians out there that say you can't know. John says you can and he's written 1 John so you can do a fruit analysis to kind of see if you really are a believer. So it really is true that when a sinner repents of their sins and turns to Christ and believes in him for salvation, they are born again in that moment. They are forgiven of their sins. They have the Holy Spirit living within. They have a reserved place in heaven. And John says, I want you to be assured. I want you to know that you have that eternal life. 
So yes, we should speak of assurance of salvation based on trusting belief in Jesus. It's one of the reasons, you know, Awana stands for approved workmen are not ashamed. And the verse that comes from in Timothy says that they are rightly dividing the word of truth. It's one of the reasons why we give careful look at how the scriptures unfold and the ages it presents to us, how God worked in ages past and in this church age we're in. And we also look at things like why things are said a certain way in the gospels and then in the book of Acts, the the early church history, and then the letters that were written to Christians in the churches that were being planted and individuals the letters that come after that. So belief saves. John 3.16, believe and you're saved. Of course, that involves receiving Christ. It involves trust in him. You know, it's interesting in the book of Acts, the word love doesn't appear once. And you can check me on that. If you find it once or twice, uh, I'll I'll, 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 uh, update that next week and stuff. I didn't find it. The word belief occurs many times. What's happening in the book of Acts? The early Christians are taking the gospel of Jesus Christ and how he'll save sinners to Jewish unbelievers and to pagan unbelievers. And they say to them, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And as they go, people did. And they went to the next place, preached again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. They did and people did. And those early disciples, those believers, started following Christ. The letters, Romans all the way to, Revelation's a kind of letter, so Romans all the way to the end of the New Testament, shows the letters that the apostles were writing to individuals and believers. So, uh, I'm sorry, individuals and churches. And they're saying, hey, when you believed in Christ, you became a saint. He even calls the church in Corinth saints, even though there was some unsaintly behavior among the saints. Positionally, they were saints because of belief and trust in Christ. But what happens as he builds in through 1 Corinthians? He says, hey, if you have believed, what's going to show it? Love for God, love for others. So belief, that's the assurance before God that we have trusted him alone for salvation. That is the assurance before God, but there's a reassurance before people also. When others can see the love we have, it gives us greater confidence that we truly have believed because if you say you believe but there's not love for God and others, uh uh-oh, maybe you haven't really believed, right? Right? This passage says, we're back in 1 John chapter 3 now, that we can have not just assurance in our head, but reassurance in our hearts based on God's love for us overflowing into love for others. And so every time that Paul and the other apostles, when they're writing the letters, commend people for what, how their belief is being expressed, they always include love. I know you believe in Jesus because you love others in his name. I know you love Jesus because you love him enough to be worshiping him and and looking into his word and those things. I think it's a little bit like marriage. Belief in Jesus is like when Elizabeth and I said I do to each other on August 1st, 1992. We're married till death do us part, and I'm assured of that. Um, But 30 years later, August 1st, 2022, (laughs) We spent the day together and we went on a long hike at Hanging Rock State Park over in North Carolina. It was one of those regular reassurances to us about how much our relationship means to us. Belief, eternal life. 
love for ongoing relationship with God, this relationship we have with him and others in the body of Christ. No lone rangers, no personal transactions where, okay, I've got this settled, so I've got this compartment taken care of, and now I live my life to advance myself. No, if you've believed, it will be shown throughout a day, throughout a week, throughout a month, throughout a year, throughout a decade, throughout a life with love toward others. Look, let's look at John's pastoral heart taking over in verse 20. Verse 20, he says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Now, John knows, after that great statement in verse 19, where he said, By this we will know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Beyond the belief, the love for others. He knows that some of his more sensitive readers, just like some of more, my more sensitive hearers now, are going to say, I'm just not sure I'm loving enough. I think I believe in Jesus, but I'm not sure I routinely show the love of Christ to others. And does that mean I'm not really saved? Do I do enough? And what can easily happen, and I'm afraid some preaching in America does it, is it gets people off of belief and love and it makes them consider all the commands that we know are in the New Testament and we start thinking, yeah, I don't really do enough of that and I struggle with this sin. And, and John knows that some people are going to be having that argument inside themselves, especially the more sensitive and tender among them. And as a great pastor says, listen, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. The truth that Jesus has spoken over us is greater than the feelings that we have that come and go. Some people are more emotive, they're more expressive, others are less so. Some naturally smile, others uh, do not. But it doesn't mean joy's not in there. My father-in-law is a great man, loves the Lord. He's in chronic pain because of an accident he had at work. He kept working after that, but in chronic pain because of that. And so he doesn't walk around with uh, Danny Campbell kind of smile on his face, but he's got Jesus kind of joy in his heart. And his love for others has shown that in lots and lots of different ways over the years, certainly to me as his son-in-law. John knew that many precious disciples would be convicted about how much more they could be doing for Jesus, and Satan might trouble that sensitive conscience to make people fear that they aren't saved at all. So John reminds them that God is greater than our hearts. He's greater than what we feel. And what a great truth that is, especially for our fickle emotions and the truth of the hymn that says, prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. God is greater than our hearts. Their inconsistency in being as loving as they could toward others should not take away from them a sense of assurance of salvation. But when our faith is expressed through love, over and over again, it can powerfully reassure us in those moments before God and before others. That's why he writes verse 21. Look what it says there. He says, now beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, now what he's doing is here, it seems like he's saying one than the other. No, he's saying that God is greater than our hearts. The reality that God has about us is greater than our feelings about it. But he goes quickly to saying, now I'm trying to press you guys because I want you to have confidence before God. I want you when you pray to him to know that you're his child, to know that you have eternal life. And I want you to have confidence because you do live a life of love toward others. I want you to have confidence when you, and, and that's what will happen if you 
more and more consistently line up your loving actions toward others with the belief in God that you have. He says, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And next he talks about prayer. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So when you become that kind of unselfish saint, and it's all for you about belief in God and love for others, then it even changes how you pray. You can pray with confidence because you know you're not asking in the selfish spirit of Cain, but from a desire to love like Jesus. And so when it's about belief and love for you, then all of a sudden you you don't pray selfishly anymore. James, you know, talked about how you don't have because you don't ask. So you got to pray. You got to ask to have what you need from the Lord. But then he says, but some of you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong selfish motives. But the opposite is that when we pray truly wanting what's best for God's will and for others good, then he's, we can have confidence that God's right there with us, helping things move toward his ends. Well, folks, verse 23 is very personal to me. It says again, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Some of you know that I wrote a devotional through 1 John, and I almost didn't. I almost didn't. Uh, it might be over here. We can put it out if you need it at some point. I think they're online also. But I almost didn't because John's letter, those five chapters, are relentless are relentless about saying, if you believe in Jesus, you're going to do what God says. You're going to obey him. And it's so relentless in there that many times you think, man, (laughs) if I take these verses literally, and I like to take the scripture literally, (laughs) then I got a problem here because I think sinful thoughts too much. I do sinful actions too much. And, and, And a troubled, sensitive conscience can be just beaten down by 1 John if that's all you see in there. Now, of course, 1 John also has some of the very best verses about God's forgiveness available to those who confess. What's the verse we use all the time? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you put those two together, and I've felt like a yo-yo before. Oh, I'm not, as, I'm, I'm not obeying all the commands like I should. Oh, God, forgive me. You know. Now, I like how 1 John 2.1 says it. I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. Listen, God wants everybody in this room to be holy in all the ways he wants you to be holy. You'll always be the winner in that deal when you do what God says rather than what man says, right? I write these things to you so you not sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So on the one hand, John tells us he knows you're going to blow it. You got access to Christ to forgive and refresh and all those different things. But just thinking about all that God asks us to do sometimes has overwhelmed me, and I have felt like a yo-yo, until I finally understood what John was leading us toward in 1 John 3.23. You know, Romans 3.23 is a key verse, so is 1 John 3.23. It says, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Now, follow my train of thought here. He says, you've got to do what God says. And he says, now I'm going to tell you the sum of what God says. Believe in Jesus and love one another. Now, when you break that down as the sum of what all the other commands are about, you can fit every one of the Ten Commands under belief, proper belief, and proper love of God and others. We're called to believe and love. 
I was saying, God, I want to obey you, but I often think a wrong thought, speak a wrong word, do a wrong action. I fear I fall short of obeying your commands. And here's what I hear, 1 John 3, 23, Jesus saying to me in response, Danny, do you believe in me? And I say, well, yes, Lord. I, I believe in you with all my heart. I was so lost when I was a senior in high school, so far away from God. And, and your gospel came to me. And I heard about what you did for me on the cross, Jesus, and I believed. I did then, I do now, I always will. I trust you and you alone for my eternal salvation. And then I hear Jesus asking, Danny, do you want to love others as I have loved you? And with all my imperfections and all the ways I've blown it over the years, I look back to God and say, yes, Lord. I want to be a conduit of your love to others. I want that to be true in my own family, starting with my wife. I want that to be true in the church I pastor, beyond the church I pastor, everyone I meet, every place, even if they treat me more like Cain than Abel. I want to love others in you. And Danny, do you believe in me? Yes, I believe. Danny, do you want to love others the way I've loved you? Yes, Lord, that's my heart. That's what I want to do. And I heard the Holy Spirit saying that, Danny, go back and view all the other things I've commanded you through the lens of belief and love. Why do you not commit adultery? Because you ex you're expressing true love toward the spouse God has for you by rejecting adultery and lustful thoughts and all those different things. There's a lot of verses about dealing with your eye temptations and things like that. Why? Because it's a great struggle for men and women both. And so, yes, we wind up blowing it some there, but do you love me? Do you want to love others in my name? Yes, Lord, that's what I want to do. And those are the assessment that John's bringing you through in this and leads up to that great affirmation in 1 John 5, 13. Do you believe in Jesus and want to love others in his name? That's the question I'm asking each and every person now. Just take this moment and think, do you believe in Jesus? Are you trusting him alone for salvation? And is it your heart's desire to love others in his name the rest of your days? If that's you, then let your heart be assured and reassured this morning before God. You do believe. Ask God to help your unbelief. And you do love. Ask God to make you even more loving and consistent. Go ahead and bow your heads. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.